0: The title of today's message, The Seven Wonders of the Cross, uh, The Final Words of Christ, Uh, I've shared this message in the past. Uh, I was looking at my records, uh, I believe I shared this message about uh, six years ago, uh, but uh, let me tell you what prompted me uh, to return to it. Uh, First, this Friday, and you're all invited to this, uh, I'll be speaking along with uh, six other pastors at Fourth Street Baptist uh, downtown, one of our uh, black churches that we've had a good relationship with uh, for many, many years now. And uh, there are seven pastors that will be sharing. We're, we will each take one of the uh, sayings of Christ from the uh, cross. I believe there are five black ministers and two, uh, two white, and it should be a wonderful time. And that's at 6 o'clock at 4th uh, Street. So that sort of prompted me, but to be honest, the primary reason is uh, just a very personal one. Uh, This is truth that I return to uh, every Easter season. Uh, I just love the truth that is contained uh, in this message, not because it's mine, it's the words of Christ. And uh, the significance of these words and uh, what it uh, has brought to us in terms of salvation and redemption. And I've just found this truth has just built in me just a deeper and deeper appreciation and gratitude for my Lord and Savior Jesus that just continues to to grow and enlarge, and uh, this truth never, never gets old. So the seven wonders of the cross, the final words of Christ. I hope you picked up a copy of the sermon notes, and please notice, I wrote those in such a way that you could use this as... Uh, Um, daily meditations going to Easter, beginning with the Monday meditation being His first saying from the cross, going all the way through Good Friday, and then Easter Sunday. And I would encourage you to do that, Uh, to take this and just use it in your personal devotions. It will just take you several minutes each day to reflect on this truth, and as you walk through it, just thank Him uh, for who He is and what He did for you, and let it renew your surrender uh, to Him. I think we would all agree that the final words of a person prior to death uh, generally carry great significance. And never has this been more true than in the case of Jesus. Jesus was nailed on the cross at nine o'clock in the morning, and He remained there until three o'clock in the afternoon when He died. During those six terrible hours, Jesus spoke seven statements. Now the final words of Christ cannot be fully appreciated apart from the context of the crucifixion. So let me just take a moment to remind you of the suffering and agony of our Savior. Prior to being nailed on the cross, Jesus was scourged. He was stripped of all of his clothing, and he was tied to a low stone column with his face toward the ground. And then a professional executioner took a whip where bits of bone and metal were sewn into the tips. And with that whip, that professional executioner that was known as a lictor, he beat the back of Jesus until it was literally ripped to shreds. If you've ever seen the depiction of uh, the scourging in the movie, The Passion of the Christ, uh, that is very accurate what you see there and what he would have experienced. Uh, The scourging uh, would have taken right out about four minutes. Uh, There would have been significant blood loss. Jesus would have been left in a state of shock just short of death, and this professional executioner was literally an expert in torture, bringing an individual right to the point of death without killing him. And then, of course, at this point, Jesus became a comic king in the eyes of the soldiers. They crowned him with a crown of thorns, and they began to beat him about his face Until he became unrecognizable. Uh, This helps us understand Isaiah chapter 52 verse 14. Where we read his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any man. And his form marred beyond human likeness. They spit in his face. And they mocked him by saying hail king of the Jews. The soldiers then redressed Jesus and hung around his neck a sign naming his crime, King of the Jews. They then began the long, hard walk to Calvary with Jesus carrying his cross. Eventually, the tortured body of Jesus fell beneath the weight of the cross as a man by the name of Simon was forced to bear cross. The cross for Jesus. Arriving at the place of execution, Jesus once again was stripped of all of his clothing and mounted on the cross. To hold Jesus, to hold him there in place, the soldiers drove large steel spikes into his wrist and feet. The sign that read, King of the Jews, was attached to the cross directly above his head. Then the cross was tilted and dropped into the socket with that sudden jolt, as you can imagine, sending a shock wave of unbearable pain throughout the entire body of Christ. You need to understand that death by crucifixion was one of progressive weakness giving way to unbearable pain. Uh, Jesus, like all other victims of crucifixion, was given to constant motion on the cross to avoid suffocation. Because of the slumped position of the body, uh, respiration was greatly restricted. Uh, For this reason, when a person was nailed to the cross, his legs were left bent so that he could raise his body to breathe. But to raise his body, Jesus had to flex his elbows and then push against the spike that had been driven through his feet. So each time he lifted himself just to take a single breath, he felt excruciating pain where the nails had been driven through his feet and wrist. Lifting his body would also painfully scrape the wounds of his scourged back against the rough wood of the cross. Add to this intense thirst, exposure to weather and insects, and unbearable muscle cramps. When the muscles could no longer lift the body, Jesus died, unable to draw another breath. And it's within this context of indescribable cruelty and pain that Jesus spoke His last words. And it's this that makes them all the more incredible. So follow in your notes as we look at Christ's first statement, which reveals the first wonder of the cross. The cross is God's instrument of pardon. The cross is God's instrument of pardon. Jesus took what the Romans created as a method of execution to be the source of eternal life for you and I as we would know His pardon. Look at Luke 23, verse 34. But Jesus was saying, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. When man had done his worst, Jesus prayed, not for justice, but for pardon. His prayer for forgiveness came from his lips while the nails were literally being driven through his body. The verb tense in the Greek indicates that Jesus prayed this prayer over and over again, beginning as they were nailing the spikes through his wrist and feet. Father, forgive them. Father, forgive forgive them. Father, forgive them. Father, forgive Andy. So you need to make this personal. He was praying for you, praying for your pardon, praying for your forgiveness. Now this prayer raises an intriguing question that really brings us to the heart of the gospel of Christ. How could a just God How could a just, holy God answer His Son's prayer to forgive guilty sinners, and yet remain holy and just? Where the answer is found in that next verse in your notes, Isaiah 53, verse 12. He, referring to Jesus, willingly gave His life and was treated like a criminal. But He carried away the sins of many people and asked forgiveness of those who sinned. How could God answer His Son's prayer to forgive guilty sinners and still remain just? Because at the same time that Jesus was asking His Father to forgive sinners, He was dying to pay the penalty for our sin and to satisfy God's justice. We are told... In Isaiah 53, that Jesus was pierced for what? Our sins. He was crushed for our iniquities. He took the punishment we deserved. And again, it is so important to make this personal. Jesus was pierced for Andy's sins. Jesus was crushed for Andy's iniquities. Jesus took the punishment that Andy deserved see jesus used the cross and the nails driven through his body to build a bridge of forgiveness over which guilty sinners can come to the father he who needed no forgiveness died for those who are condemned without it so the first wonder of the cross is that jesus transformed what was an instrument of punishment into an instrument of pardon. Look at the second wonder of the cross. The cross is God's gateway to paradise. The cross is God's gateway to paradise. As you know, two thieves were crucified with Jesus, and one of those thieves said to Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus replied, is in Luke 23, verse 43, there in your notes. Jesus said to the thief, Truly I say to you, today you shall be with me in paradise. Now there are two lessons to be learned. First lesson is this. No person is ever beyond the reach of God's mercy. Your sin may be great, but His love is greater. It is never too late to come to Jesus Christ. The second truth is heaven is obtained not on the basis of works but is the free gift of God's grace to those who put their trust in Jesus for salvation. The thief never had an opportunity to perform even a single good deed. He was not not even baptized. The thief simply acknowledged the fact that he was a guilty sinner deserving of punishment and then placed his faith in the mercy of Jesus Christ. As a result, this vile sinner gained heaven in a transaction that took less than 10 seconds. So somewhere in heaven, there is a grinning ex-con walking the streets of gold. No one, no one would have given this man a prayer. But in the end, a prayer was all he had. And in the end, a prayer was all that it took. In Romans 10 13, we read what? Whoever, whoever will call upon the name of the Lord, what? Will be saved. The cross praise Him is God's gateway to paradise. Look at the third wonder of the cross. The cross is also God's bond of partnership. The cross is God's bond of partnership. Look at John chapter 19 verses 26 and 27. It says, when Jesus therefore saw His mother... And the disciple whom he loved, that's of course a reference to the Apostle John standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to his disciple, Behold your mother. Uh, We're also told in the Scripture that from that hour, Jesus took Mary into his own household and cared for her the rest of her life. Now, what you need to understand is that immediately prior to this statement, the soldiers were dividing among themselves Jesus' clothing. And there were five pieces. There would have been his headpiece. There would have been his sandals. There would have been the outer garment, the outer robe, the belt to hold it together. And then there was an undergarment called a katan. The Jewish mother wove the katan, with her own hands from a very soft cloth and gave it to her son when he reached adulthood. Mary, again with her own hands, had woven the katan for Jesus. And the Bible tells us that it was seamless, woven in one piece. Now, capture the scene. Mary is at the foot of the cross. At her side, the Apostle John. The four soldiers at the base of the cross begin to divide the five articles of clothing among themselves. But they face a dilemma. Who should get the fifth piece of clothing? The catan, which was the most expensive piece. That decision was made by casting lots. When the soldiers touched the catan, which Mary had woven with her own hands for Jesus, as you can imagine, her heart was pierced with unspeakable pain. Jesus, despite his pain, feeling his mother's pain, turns to her and with infinite tenderness says, Woman, behold your son, referring to John. And then he turns to John and says, Behold your mother. In effect, Jesus was saying, John, you are to adopt Mary as your mother. Take her into your home and care for her, which John did. Now, what is the lesson for you and I today? The cross of Christ binds all believers together in one family. One family. Jesus said, They will know you are my disciples. How? By your love for one another. We are to demonstrate a love that is greater than racism, a love that is greater than prejudice, a love that is greater than our differences, a love that overcomes all unforgiveness and bitterness. Look at Ephesians chapter 2 verse 16. Christ reconciled both groups to God by means of His death on the cross and our hostility toward each other was put to death. Never forget, the cross is comprised of both a vertical and a horizontal beam. And the vertical beam represents our reconciliation with God. But the horizontal beam recognizes the fact that Christ's death not only reconciled us to God, but it reconciles us to one another, bringing us through Christ in one family. And we need to realize as believers to claim reconciliation with God while not seeking reconciliation with others is the epitome of hypocrisy. And it makes a mockery of the cross. That's why there is no place in the body of Christ for racism, no place for prejudice, no place for bitterness, unforgiveness, no place to carry a grudge, holding something against a brother or a sister in Christ. And again, to do so makes a mockery of the cross, because the cross is God's bond of partnership that makes us one. Look at the fourth wonder of the cross. The cross is God's guarantee of His presence. The cross is God's guarantee of His presence. In Matthew chapter 27 verse 46 we read, And about the ninth hour, that was right at three, so we were right near His death, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Jesus spoke the first three statements during his first three hours on the cross. Somewhere between 9 a.m. and noon. We're told at noon, darkness fell on the earth. As if nature was mourning for the death of its creator. From noon to three, there was silence. Until Jesus broke that silence when he cried out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? The term cried out is a very, very strong word in the Greek text. The word was used to depict a guttural scream or the roaring of a lion. Now imagine the scene. Darkness blankets the earth at noon followed by three hours of eerie silence. Then suddenly, Jesus burst the silence with a piercing scream, which literally reads, My God! My God! Why me have you forsaken? The Holy Son of God who throughout all eternity had known nothing but His Father's love, was now abandoned by His Father. Why? Why? Because as our sin-bearer, Jesus became the object of His Father's wrath. In those moments on the cross, He who knew no sin... Became sin. What? On our behalf. Your sins fell on Him as He was pierced, crushed for your iniquities, punished not for what He had done, but what you have done. See, on that cross, God the Father treated His Son As if he had lived your sinful life. So that today, he could treat you as if you had lived Jesus' sinless life. Praise him. I'll never get over that truth. I'll never get over that mercy. Over that kindness. Over such love. See, Jesus cried, my God, my God, why me? Have you forsaken so that you could have God's guarantee found in Hebrews 13, verses 5 and 6? Look at it. He himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you, so that we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. God the Father forsook Jesus then so that you would never be forsaken by God. And believer, child of God, you will never walk through anything in life where Christ will not be with you. He'll be with you to guide you, to direct you, to encourage, strengthen, support. Yes, when necessary, correct you, and yes, when necessary, to carry you when you've come to the end of your hoarded resources. So the cross is God's guarantee of His presence. Hallelujah. Look at the fifth wonder of the cross. The cross is God's proof of His pathos. Pathos means suffering. The cross, of course, is God's proof of His pathos, of His suffering, and His ability to sympathize with you and I in our pain. In John chapter 19, verse 28, shortly before His death, these last three statements were spoken uh, very quickly, or these last uh, four. In John 19, verse 28, shortly before his death, Jesus said, I am thirsty. I am thirsty. You need to understand that crucifixion is a slow, long process of dehydration. Now think about this. Go back to the Garden of Gethsemane. Where the stress was so great, he sweat drops of blood. And then they arrested him. Throughout that night, beat him. Took him through a series of just trials that made a mockery out of justice. Spent a night chained up in a dungeon. And then he, the next morning, scourged. As we mentioned earlier, with significant blood loss. Left this place just short of death. Forced to carry his cross. And now he spent six hours on the cross. And folks, I guarantee those Roman soldiers weren't giving him a drink during any of that period of time. We read in Psalm 22, verses 14 and 15. You remember Psalm 22 is a prophetic psalm. Referring to the crucifixion of Christ, it says, I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My my heart is like wax, it is melted within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue cleaves to my jaws, and you lay me in the dust of death. Now what we need to see here is it was not Christ's deity that was thirsty, it was what? His humanity. Do you remember our study in Philippians 2 at the end of last year? It talks about the fact that although Jesus was, what, equal with God, He did not consider equality with God a thing to, what, selfishly grasp, but He emptied Himself. He took all of His deity and He poured it into human flesh. Holy God and holy man, a mystery, but a truth. And it says, and being in the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of man, he humbled himself to the point of what? Death. Death on a cross. See, the fact that Jesus became a man and suffered reminds us that we have a Savior that can sympathize with our pain. Where is Jesus when you hurt? He is weeping with you interceding for you and ready to sustain you by His comfort and His grace. Look at Hebrews 4, verses 15 and 16. This high priest of ours understands our weaknesses, for he faced all of the same testings we do, yet he did not sin. So let us come boldly to the throne of our gracious God. There we will receive His mercy. And we will find grace to help us when we need it most. Now before I move on, I need to mention one other thing. Jesus' thirst was deeper than a physical thirst. It was a spiritual thirst. Caused by being in the fierce heat of God's wrath as he was abandoned by God and became the object of his Father's full fury as payment for our sin. In Luke chapter 16, listen to this. You're all familiar with the parable of the rich man and Lazarus? Listen to this very, very carefully. Remember the... Rich man goes to hell. The poor man, Lazarus, ends up in heaven because of his trust in God. And, of course, uh, the rich man had denied God. And it says this, referring to the rich man. In Hades, in hell, he lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus so that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue, for I am in agony in this flame. Let me read for you a remarkable quote related to this by Matthew Henry. The torments of hell are represented by a violent thirst in the complaint of the rich man who begged for a drop of water to cool his tongue. To that everlasting thirst we had all been condemned if Christ had not suffered on the cross. Hell is heightened desires with decreased satisfaction. Hell is the inflamed desires of the body with no possibility of a drink. Hell is remembering the living water we could have enjoyed on earth that would have taken us to heaven. Hell is a lake of fire, a place of endless, unquenchable thirst. Thankfully, Jesus suffered parts, lips, that we might be able to drink from the wells of salvation. He endured the thirst of hell so that its fires might be quenched for us. Of those in heaven we read, never again will they hunger. Never again will they thirst. The sun will not bear upon them nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. And He will lead them to the springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Jesus suffered thirst that we would never thirst and enjoy the living waters throughout all eternity. Look at the sixth wonder of the cross. Look at the sixth wonder of the cross. The cross is God's method of debt payment. (laughs) The cross is God's method of debt payment. In John 19, verse 30, Jesus said, It is what? Finished. And most of you know this. I remember uh, Brother David often teaching this years and years ago. Literally, that phrase, it is finished, means what? Debt, what? Paid in full. It's literally what it means. It, it, was, it was an accountant's term. It is finished. Debt paid in full. Look with me at Colossians chapter 2, verse 14. He, Jesus... Cancelled the record of charges against us and took it away. How? By nailing it to the cross. As I mentioned earlier, when a criminal was executed, a sign with the charges against him was hung around his neck. And they did that with Jesus. They hung that around his neck as he took that cross to Calvary and then it was nailed Above his head on the cross. Jesus, listen now, Jesus took the sinless that hung around your neck like a hangman's noose and he nailed it to the cross to cancel out your certificate of debt to God. And notice the words, canceled the record of charges in Colossians 2.14. Canceled the record of charges. A better translation would be to wipe off. Like uh, erasing a blackboard clean. God offers to wipe the slate clean for anyone who puts his trust in Jesus Christ for salvation. Because the cross is God's method of debt payment. And not. And this, is, this is, I wish I had more time, but this is even better news. He not only canceled out your sin debt, but then he made a deposit into your account. And He deposited into your account every single bit of the righteousness of Jesus Christ to reconcile you to God. So as an act of mercy, cancel out your sin debt and then pour it into your account, the righteousness of Jesus Christ, not on the basis of works, but simply His mercy as we trust Him. Look at the seventh wonder of the cross. The final statement that he made as he died, which indicates the cross is God's way to resurrection power. The cross is God's way to resurrection power. In Luke 23, verse 46, we read, and Jesus, crying out with a loud voice, said, Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. I want you to look at that word, commit. might want to circle it, commit. That word literally means to make a deposit. To make a deposit. Now listen, so important. The proof, the proof that God was satisfied with the deposit of Christ's death as payment for your sins was the resurrection of Christ as God snatched up the deposit, signifying a completed transaction. Amen? The same power that raised Jesus from the dead is available to you today. God wants the resurrection to be more than a historical event that you celebrate once a year. He wants it to be a power that you experience every day a power to walk in newness of life, a power to walk in love, a power to advance the gospel of Jesus Christ. Look at Ephesians 1, verses 19 and 20. I also pray that you will understand the incredible greatness of God's power for us who believe, that's been given to us who believe. This is the same power that raised Christ from the dead. And it's through that power that you can not only manage your present problems but find victory over them, it's by that same power that you're able to encounter every challenge in life, realizing what? I can do all things through Christ who what? Strengthens me. So beautiful truth today, the cross is God's instrument of pardon. It's God's gateway to paradise. It's God's bond of partnership. It's God's guarantee of His presence. It's His proof of His pathos. It's His method of debt payment. And it's His way to resurrection power. Now what's going to be your response today to what we've just looked at and seen? I don't know how, I don't know how any believer realizing this can ever be the same. And I'll tell you exactly what Jesus intended for this truth to do in your life and my life. And there's a beautiful, beautiful example. Right prior to his death, Jesus was eating with his disciples. And if you remember, as they're eating, Mary of Bethany, the sister of Martha, sister of Lazarus, who he raised from the dead, she walks in. With her most costly possession is probably a part of her wedding dowry a costly vial of perfume And if you remember the story she walks over to jesus who was reclining at table with his disciples she broke that alabaster vial of perfume and she poured every drop on jesus in the most i believe extravagant act of worship you find in the bible it was actually done a second time by and a moral woman, if you're familiar with that story, that's recorded in Luke chapter 7. So there are two women that, Mary Bethany and the moral woman in Luke 7, that anointed him on different occasions. Do you remember the response of the disciples who were watching this? Do you remember? They became angry. They became angry. They turned to Mary, and they said, Mary, why this waste? Waste. Waste. Think about that. They said, you you could have sold that, and that money could have been used to minister to the poor. And they're scolding her, jumping off. And then all of a sudden, Jesus' righteous indignation comes to the front. And he turns to his men and he says, men, leave this woman alone because what she's done is a good thing. She has anointed me prior to my burial, to my death and burial. And then he made a most remarkable statement. He said, men, what this woman has done to me will be spoken of in remembrance of her wherever the gospel is preached for all times. Do you understand what Jesus was saying when he made that statement? He was basically telling his disciples this woman is the only one that really gets it. Look at this woman. That is what my gospel is meant to produce in the heart of of a person who puts their trust in me see mary's eyes had been opened much quicker than the disciples she realized why he had come to pay the penalty for our sin on the cross and she was so moved by that she had to express her love and adoration and jesus was basically saying men The gospel is meant to open your eyes to who I am and what I have done for you. So much so that you come to the place and you realize no gift could ever be too extravagant for Jesus. No surrender too deep. And that's what he was saying. He says, men, that is what truth like this is to produce in the heart of my child, of my follower." So yes, this truth should evoke a response from us, a response that's motivated just out of sheer delight, worship, appreciation, adoration, love for who He is and what He did for us. And in light of that, how can I not live for Him? How can I not surrender my life fully and wholly to Him, turning away from all sin, anything that would displease Him, anything that would grieve Him, anything that would quench Him, to turn to follow Jesus as my first love, greatest passion, and greatest pursuit in life? How can I not come to Him today and say, Jesus, I count all things lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing and following You. Yea, I count all things as garbage in comparison to knowing You. And oh, it's my heart's desire to know the power of Your resurrection, to be made conformable to Your death, to know the fellowship of Your sufferings. And yes, I'm going to press on by Your grace working in my life To run that course you've laid out for me. Towards that upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Never again to look back. Only to look forward. Keeping my eyes fixed on the prize. The prize being my Lord and Savior Jesus. To please Him. To honor Him. To hear those words when I cross the finish line. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. So believers, there's much for us to respond to here today. If you're here and you don't know Christ, right now you're condemned to an eternity of unquenchable thirst in the flames of God's wrath. But Jesus came to spare you from that. As we've seen, offer you forgiveness through his death on the cross as he paid for the penalty of your sin. And you have the opportunity this day to put your trust in Him. You have the opportunity this day to call upon the name of the Lord to be saved. To make your heart His home as you invite Him in to forgive you of your sins.